The Universal Service Fund is one of the more important government programs you've probably never heard of. The core idea behind the USF is laudable enough. We as a society should spend some money on making sure that schools, libraries, healthcare facilities, and remote areas have access to telecommunications and information services, such as broadband. As its name suggests, this is precisely what the Universal Service Fund aims to do. At its best, the USF seeks to spread the benefits of technological innovation across the country and to help close what is often called the digital divide. But having your heart in the right place is the first and by no means the last step to creating a successful government program. Unfortunately, the USF was made with the recipe for a failed government program. Start pooling money. Put no check on how that pile of money grows. Design the program so the benefits go to concentrated interest groups while the costs are dispersed across diffuse ones. Above all, make sure no one is really in charge. The USF started as a modest, roughly 5% tax on people's telephone bills. As the program has spun out of control and the tax base of people using landline telephones has shrunk, the tax has grown to around 30%. The size of the fund, meanwhile, has more than doubled to around $10 billion a year. Needless to say, this path is unsustainable. Experts and commentators from across the political spectrum recognize as much, though unsurprisingly, they are deeply divided over what to do about it. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. As far as I'm concerned, there is only one man who could help me convey to our listeners how interesting the USF really is and how much drama and intrigue it can generate. And that is our own Jim Dunstan, General Counsel here at Tech Freedom. I'm most pleased to welcome him back to the show. Jim, hello. Hey, Corbin. So yeah, trying to put uh, USF and interesting in the same sentence, a bit of an oxymoron, but I'll do my best. I have grand ambitions here. Yes, I thought I'd just go for it. Um, it, uh, it takes a little peeling, but you get there. So I've briefly sketched things uh, out in the intro, but I'd like to start by letting you elaborate on what the Universal Service Fund is and how it works. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to go into huge detail, but just enough of table setting so we can sort of get into some of these issues. Sure. So you know, the USF has been around for a long time, uh, a really long time. It, it predates the 1996 Telecommunications Act um, and really dates back to the, about the 70s or maybe even a little, little bit before then, where the Bell monopoly, the AT&T monopoly, essentially subsidized um building out into more rural areas through um, uh, from the long distance you know, telephone bills. Uh, and that was, you know, the FCC has the mandate under the original Communications Act to deliver universal service as much as practicable to get everybody a telephone line. That was the, that was the uh, goal in the beginning. In 1996, in the Telecom Act, Congress finally actually put it into statute and said, okay, this is, you know, this is how you do it, but as we'll talk about it in rather vague language. So you pointed out sort of the metrics, um, just to go one layer deeper in the onion. Um, the USF is broken down into four major programs. This is the high cost program. And so that goes to carriers 
um, to help them build out to more rural areas. Um, that's, the, that's the high cost. The second one is the Lifeline program. That's a subsidy to individuals who can't afford um, uh, phone or broadband. Um, and, and that's a direct sub subsidy, but it doesn't actually go to the individual. It actually goes to the carrier that they're subscribed to. Uh, those are the two largest funds uh, by far. Uh, the third one is the E-Rate program, which is the schools and library program. Um, E-Rate actually stands for the educational rate because carriers are supposed to provide their best rate to schools and libraries. And again, these subsidies go to uh, the carriers, but they're applied for by individual schools and libraries. And finally is the telehealth uh, program, which is a relatively small program. Uh, but it's growing um, because of the need, especially during COVID, uh, the idea that we should subsidize bigger pipes uh, so people can do tele tele telemedicine. So those are the four, uh, four programs. Um, and as you say, you know, they're growing rapidly. The contribution factor is growing out of, out of control. And that's kind of where we are. And as I also mentioned, the tax base is shrinking. I mean, I don't own a landline telephone. Um, yeah, how, well, how much well, has it shrunk? I mean, how dire is that situation? Right, right. So, so one small correction: it's actually on both wireless phone and and and, and landline phone. Ah, so I'm yes. paying it on my cell phone. You're paying it on your cell phone. That's well, right. there you go. I, this is why I need you here to tell me these things. But but you're actually only paying it on the telephone part of you. So if, if you have a, a package, which is a combination of broadband data and telephone, you're technically only paying on a portion of it. And that gets way too intricate for this show to how, how carriers kind of break that down um, between the two. But that's the key fact. Um, what, the, what the statute says and what Congress said in 1996 is that the contribution base is only on telecommunications services. Um, and that's defined as telephone. So broadband is not a telecommunication services. And oh, by the way, even when it was under Title II net neutrality, um, a song for a different day, um, even in 2015, the FCC said, well, we're not going to um, increase the, the, the contribution base to include uh, broadband services. So it's always been just on telephone um, service. And by the way, that's so that's that's landline, that's wireless, and that's also interconnected VoIP, but not non-interconnected VoIP. Again, another program for, for another day. Well, speaking, I, I guess I'll just carry the standard of millennials in saying this. I mean, I don't talk on the phone that much. I mean, I text, I email, I Slack, I Twitter, I Facebook, but like actually talking on the telephone, I mean, I talk to my mother, um, but it just seems like an terribly, uh, a terribly antiquated way yes. to do it, to have the oldest yes. system pay for all of the newest systems. So exactly. And economics 101 says, you know, the contribution uh, base goes down um, and the size of the fund goes up, uh, what happens, has to happen? Well, the tax rate has to go, as you said, from five to 30%. Um, and it's, you know, it's spiraling out of control. Yeah. I mean, did you have a somewhat concrete idea of like, how fast is that base dwindling? Like we, it's clearly unsustainable. How unsustainable yeah. is it? Like well, how bad's the emergency? Well, we don't know uh, for, for a couple of reasons. One of which is that actually the, the, the contribution factor has gone down most recently. It's gone down from 30% to 25%. Well, why is that? Well, the main reason for that is that the Lifeline program used to support both telephone 
telephone and broadband. Um, and we had something called the EBB, the Emergency Broadband Fund, which was funded through the Universal Service Fund. Okay. And that's why it popped from 28 to 30%. Well, Congress in one of the stimulus packages said, well, we're gonna set up a different program called the ACP, the Affordable Con Connectivity Program, and we're funding that out of general revenues. And so now the broadband portion of Lifeline is no longer funded through the Universal Service Fund. Hmm, sounds like a solution, doesn't it? And so that's actually that, that's actually sort of, you know, lowering the hockey stick a little bit on, on how, how fast we're driving this thing off the cliff. Um, because of the fact that now broadband lifeline is pulled out of the program. But anyway, you slice it, um, and it, and it also depends on, you know, how bad does the tax has to be before somebody finally wakes up and says, this is, this is crazy. You know, mm -hmm. it, it topped out at 31.8%. Um, you know, eventually it could get to 50% very, very easily. Um, so, you know, we don't know when it's going out of control. The other thing that's, that's helping is the fact that we're getting all of this money dumped uh, from the stimulus packages into broadband deployment funding, you know, the 42.5 billion in the bead program. So that's taking a little pressure off the fund from the high cost program. And so, so basically what's happening is Congress has offloaded some of this pressure in this pressure cooker to the, to the general fund, which, oh, by the way, it has to continue doing that. Otherwise we're gonna get to a 50% or a 60% tax rate. Um, and oh, by the way, it, it is the most regressive tax ever conceived because anybody who isn't on Lifeline, which is 133% of the poverty level, pays that, you know, 30% tax. Um, so, you, you know, the day after you get that paycheck that says I'm earning enough money to, to not get free phone from my Lifeline, oh, I now have to pay for my phone and I get hit with a 30% tax. So it's an incredibly re regressive tax. Um, well, you've given me an image of, of Congress definitely putting, um, it's got about six of its fingers in the dike at this point. Uh, <laughs> at a couple toes, yeah. yeah. There are so many ways in which the USF has what you might call unaccountability by design. I mean, it, it just, it's, if you set out to make sort of a, a Frankenstein's monster government program, this is what it would look like. I mean, the enabling statute is vague. Um, the running of the program has been outsourced to a private entity. The private entity is full of people who have a vested interest in seeing an ever larger USF. As you've already mentioned, the cost does not get paid directly, but it doesn't hit the profit margin of the companies. It gets passed on to consumers. Um, some of those we'll, we'll maybe turn back to, but actually I wanted to start off because I was not aware of this until you mentioned it to me, that uh, amid all of this, perhaps one of the worst features of the whole program is how the private entity that kind of oversees everything uh, the USAC feels entitled to reach back as far as it likes in seeking contributions uh, that it thinks it is owed. Um, in legal parlance, USAC treats itself as not subject to like a statute of limitations. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I think that's really one of the most pernicious parts of all of this. Um, and, and I'll start with a, with a great quote. Um, this is from Adams versus Woods, 1805. Okay, and the quote says, in a country where not even treason can be prosecuted after a lapse of three years, 
It could, it could scarcely be supposed that an individual would re remain forever liable to a pecuniary forfeiture. You know, 1805, the Supreme, this is a Supreme Court case, Justice Marshall saying, there's got to be some limits on the ability of the government to come back and fine you or try to recoup something. And yet here's USAC saying, we don't have a statute of limitations. And the FCC, unfortunately, has bought into this um, and has said, yeah, you know, since all they're doing is recovering a benefit that somebody shouldn't have gotten, there isn't any statute of limitations. And this, on top of the fact that originally the FCC originally said two things. One, it said, USAC, you have to do these audits and you have to finish all of these audits within five years. So the FCC had a sort of self-imposed statute of limitation. And at the same time, it said, okay, all you beneficiaries and all you phone companies, you only have to, you only have to keep your records for five years. Well, then the FCC said, well, no, we think that you should keep your records for 10 years. But now USAC is actually going back. I know of several cases that are like over a dozen years old, you know, 12 years, 15 years, 17 years, I think is the, is the longest one. After the money has been received and spent, suddenly USAC comes swooping back in and says, aha, we want that money back. And oh, by the way, the burden is always on the beneficiary to prove that it should have gotten that, that benefit, right? And so effectively, what you're saying is you got to keep your records forever. You got to have all your documentation and heaven forbid, if you have turnover within your ranks, of people who you know weren't around during that during that year, and there are several instances you know, of of this happening of USAC going back, you know, to programs that either don't exist anymore, to beneficiaries that don't exist anymore, and they try to sort of climb back up and say, well, who's the closest entity we can go after? So it's absolutely crazy that USAC has has this power. The other thing reminds me of the Superfund, actually. Oh yeah, I mean it, 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 exactly. You know, and, and the other thing to, to you know, recognize, too, one is there's a memo from the FCC back to USAC, um, and this does date back to like 2008, where the FCC said, uh, USAC asked the question, they asked the FCC, you know, can we take some of that money that we claw back and pay it out to bonuses to our people? And the FCC said, oh, that sounds good to us. So actually... There's a, you know, there's a vested interest in USAC going back and trying to claw back as much money because then it gets to distribute it as a bonus to its employees. I mean, and it actually in its annual report that it gives to the FCC, it has a line item and it touts that line item as we got, we went back and we recouped this much money. Yay us. You know, I mean, it's just, oh, it, 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 it's sickening is what it is. Well, and um, I should have mentioned it's the Universal Service Administrative Co. is, yes. the, uh, Company. is the name of it. Yes. And um, I, I suppose we might as well, I had planned to maybe save this to the end, but let's dive into it now. I mean, any American who has gone through any kind of uh, civics in our history and our tradition should raise an eyebrow when they hear the phrase, you know, private lawmaking. Um, Universal Service Administrative Co. is a private entity uh, incorporated in Delaware. 
as far as I'm aware, there's nothing in the Universal Service Fund enabling statute that says to the FCC, hey, you can offload your responsibilities to a private entity. And what the FCC nonetheless turned around and did, they, they set up a, a boatload of regulations to pass off the running of the program to a private entity. Um, Congress didn't make any of these rules. You know, the agency did, the executive branch making the rules about how this thing will operate and basically said, okay, you USAC, go ahead, come up with, just come up with a number. I mean, <laughs> how much do you want? And the USAC proposes their budget every quarter, basically through the contribution factor that will get paid. And 14 days, that's the, that's the period. If the FCC doesn't squawk within 14 days, uh, that number is deemed approved. Um, and as far as I'm aware, FCC has never rejected that number. So for all intents and purposes, it is, it is a private entity that is coming up with what the substantive policy will be. And it's kind of humorous. You go to their website and it says right here, USCC's board does not make policy or interpret statutes or rules or the intent of Congress, the Federal Communications Agency or any state or federal agency. We don't, we don't do anything. I mean, we just figure out like what counts as universal service and we figure out, you know, how much money to spend every single quarter. And then we determine how to disperse it. And then when people come to us and say they want money or don't want money or whatever, we determine whether those, you know, those requests get uh, granted or denied. But we don't, we, don't, we don't do any, we don't interpret anything or do anything. Um, so I was just sort of riffing on your indignation because the way that this is set up is... Um, you know, Cardozo in his concurrence in the famous case Schechter Poultry, which is all about how the legislature cannot delegate its lawmaking power to the executive. He said in that particular case, you know, this is delegation run riot. Well, you want to talk about delegation run riot. The Congress passes the lawmaking authority to the agency, which then passes it down to the private entity. Um, you know, this is this is double delegation. Well, it, it's even worse than that because they hide behind the fact of, oh, you always have a right of appeal to the FCC. And so people do. I mean, they file these, you know, file appeals all the time, the FCC. But then when you look at the FCC orders, and I shared one with you, and <laughs> you were absolutely chagrined with it. Again, the, you've taught me much about just how deep the rot goes here. Uh, anyway, go ahead. And so the FCC orders, what they do is they, they package them all up. And then they say, all right, these, um, these, 15 cases are denied um, based on a footnote and they drop a footnote and they cite a bunch of cases. And then these, you know, 27 cases appeals are denied because of drop a footnote, a whole bunch of other cases. I mean, it's, it's just the most pro forma thing you've ever seen in your life. And so it's, you know, the FCC isn't actually doing any of the interpretation uh, of the policy. They're just rubber stamping whatever USAC does. And USAC, USAC is, is the one making the policy. I mean, it's, you know, it's the proverbial, you know, judge, jury, and executioner, uh, but it's all done by a private entity. I have never seen a judicial opinion, which is what those things are. Let's not, let's not hide that. Where 100% of the substantive analysis was just the footnotes. Yes. <laughs> um, well, the other thing I'll mention on the, you know, the, their, their website is just great. It says board members 
of the USAC represent the diverse interest groups that are interested in and affected by universal service programs. They're just out there announcing, we are, you know, we have an interest, we have a stake in what we're overseeing, but, uh, but never mind us, you know, private delegation, totally cool. Um, I, uh, I wrote an article on this and I adopted a line from a Justice Scalia dissent um, that he used in a different case about how if you had explained this to the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in, in Philadelphia, said, OK, th this is what you're signing on to. What you're signing on to is this charter that will allow authority to make laws pass from the legislature over to an agency and then down into a private entity. They would have rushed for the exits. Well, well, let, let me let me put one more corollary on that. You know, USAC has adopted such Byzantine rules and regulations and forms and procedures that anybody who wants to participate in, you know, the high cost program, okay, you've got fairly sophisticated, you know, telecom companies, so they can do that in-house. But all the, the especially in the E-rate system, the schools and libraries, you can't do that um, by, by yourself. So what do they all do? They go hire consultants. Well, who are the consultants? They're ex-FCC and ex-USAC people. And so they, they're, they're creating their own cottage industry and their own revolving door into these, these consultancies, which you have to pay money to in order to be able to get into the program or you run these risks of, of get, getting this clawback. Um, you know, recently, for example, the FCC changed its rules on the definition of tribal libraries. Right. And in the in the order, they said, you know, and we also would like comment in a further NPRM on why the participation rate is so low, you know, in Indian country. Why are so few Native American libraries participating? And, uh, you know, I filed comments on behalf of one of my tribal clients and also in, in their listening session, I said, because you have to pay a consultant to be able to participate in the program because the rules are so, so difficult. And oh, by the way, you can't, that consultancy fee, you have to pay separately. You can't roll that into your, into your E-rate program funding. And so you've got to find another pot of money to pay these consultants to get this pot of money from the schools and libraries. So it's just, it's just layer upon layer of rot, as you say. <laughs> And you worried that we wouldn't make this sound interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, Conspiratorial, perhaps. At, at this rate, we're going to, this will be the first episode where I finally get hate mail. You know, somebody <laughs> affiliated with the USCC is going to be, man, you kicked us in the shins way too hard. Okay, I'll, I'll try to bring down the temperature a little bit. Um, I think we should genuinely want to close the digital divide. Like the under the underlying thing or maybe it's above it because we've talked about all the rot underneath. So at the top here, back on the surface, you know, let's close the digital divide. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, but it also, it's pretty obvious that um, as in other situations where the government has created a money spigot, there is now a constituency that has formed like a barnacle on the side of a ship that is, you know, has a strong interest in there always being a digital divide that will be closed after the next infusion of other people's money. Um, and I say that as a prelude to bringing up the recent and massive government infrastructure bill. You alluded to it earlier. Um, you know, let's take that square on. Um, it devotes a lot of money to the USF. 
We at Tech Freedom submitted comments to the FCC on issues surrounding that money and the running of the USF more generally. Uh, and I would love to hear you uh, tell us, uh, tell listeners, and you know what 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 did we say? So uh, what we said there is, you know, the solution is not USAC. The solution isn't isn't really even the Universal fund, Service Fund or the way that it's it's currently structured. You know, the answer is what Congress did do, which is you know, the, the affordable connectivity program. That is out of general funds. It's not out of a tax on, on your phone bill. Um, same thing with the stimulus money, the, the bead um, money, the 42.5 billion that NTIA is going to give out. That's out of general funding. That's how you close the digital divide. You don't do it through through these programs, which are just, you know, as we've said, you know, the, the, there's waste, fraud, and abuse, um, they're highly expensive to administer and to do, you know, it, it, it's much better handled at, at, out of general funds and not, you know, not, not the universal service fund. And as I mentioned, it's, it's a large amount of money, um, but we've seen both here and in, of course, other places with the government, you know, a large amount of money has a way of just sort of disappearing and then the hand is out for, for yet more. How far do you think this is going to go? Do you think there is any prospect that at the end of it will go mission accomplished? Um, yeah, how, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, so a, a couple of metrics are really important. First, in 2017, the FCC issued a white paper and they said, we think that currently only 4% of the population doesn't have access to broadband. So we're at 96%. And they said at that time, 40 billion will get us to 98% and another 40 billion will get us to 100%. Everybody will have broadband for $80 billion since this is in 2017. Well, what we found is since 2017, five years ago, we've spent four times that um, already. And now they're saying, well, we actually now think that broadband availability is only 94%. So we're actually going backwards. We're spending more money and we're finding less and less people. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of which is the FCC's maps stink. They always have stunk. Um, carriers have traditionally overrepresented uh, their coverages, especially wireless guys. Um, and so we've got to get better maps. The FCC's got money, but they're really slow doing it. But we have to get these maps to figure out exactly what we've got. The other thing is, Jim, are you, are you yeah. saying I can't just rely on those Verizon T-Mobile bus station ads where the whole oh, country yeah, no, is painted they're, red? They're, they're, they're 100% <laughs> there. They're, they're, they're absolutely 100% there. Yeah. Uh, puffery, as I think is what the FTC would call it. The mere puffery. Um, but the other thing, the really important part of that, of that 2017 report was they said 40 million gets you 2% and 40, 40 billion gets you 2%, 40 billion gets you the last 2%. You know, which seems to indicate a linear you know, slope of that. Well, what we're finding is it's absolutely not. It's a hockey stick, you know, which means the closer we get, the more expensive it becomes. And that's, that should seem pretty reasonable, right? You know, if I have to extend to the next guy who's a mile from the end of the last wire, it's going to cost this. But then if I have to spend to the next guy who's five miles away, well, it's going to be five times more expensive. And literally to get from that 99 to 100%, um, which, you know, that's 3 million people, you know, 3.5 million people uh, to, to close that last 1%, right? 
you know, we're now talking in terms of, of prices like $50,000, $100,000 a person to close that. And of course, if you do that, you know, at $100 a month of broadband, guess what? You would be paying that back, you know, you know, just the CapEx cost, you know, the capital expenditure to do it forever, not to mention what the operational, the OpEx cost. Are. So literally, it may never be possible. You know, and you're talking to somebody, as I said, I mean, I represent a lot of Native American tribes in my private practice. They are at the end of that road. I mean, they are the most rural and the, and the poorest areas of the country. And absent something like a, you know, Starlink or a satellite delivered broadband, we may never get, we may never get past 98%. Um, and so that's the real you know, problem here. And yet you, you, know, you hear Alan Davidson, the head of NTIA right now saying, you know, our goal with this 42.5 billion is to get to 100%. Can't happen, you know, and especially can't happen if some of that money goes to things like overbuilding existing you know, private carriers because you think they're doing a lousy job and you want to compete with them as a municipality. Because um, every dollar you spend on overbuilding is a dollar you can't spend to extend the next wire out to the next person at the end of the end, end of the line. And so, I, you know, you're absolutely right. It, you know, we're going to spend all of this money, which you know, many people have referred to as a once in a once, not once in a lifetime, but a once in a once opportunity. Um, and we're not going to get there. We're not going to get to 100 percent. You know, I, my guess is we get to maybe 90. We may get back to that 96 percent that the FCC said we were at in 2017, but not really much past that because that last four percent is awfully expensive to go to go build. The good news, of course, being that that will give us an excuse to rant and rave five years from now on another episode. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> uh, Corbin just revealed himself as a swamp creature. Um, yeah, yes. Let's in closing, um, you know, I, I hope to our listeners that I've uh, come through on making this sound interesting. Let's turn to a little bit of the, my, my promised drama and intrigue uh, to close things out. Everyone understands that the current model uh, with our shrinking base and all that that we've already discussed being taxed uh, is unsustainable. There is a mischievous movement, movement led by FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr these days to make so-called big tech foot the bill. Um, I say it's mischievous because if you actually sort of understand how this all works, it's, uh, it's a non sequitur. It sounds sort of appealing as a, a rhetorical cudgel, but um, the, the more you unpack it, it just it makes no sense. And you, Jim, wrote about this. Uh, last year in a piece published by the Regulatory Transparency Project. So I would uh, appreciate it if you could fill us in. Yeah, so, so the problem with that approach is that, you know, we said at the beginning, the Universal Service Fund contributions are only applied to telecommunications services. Well, it actually is a little deeper than that. It's telecommunications services provided by telecommunications carriers. So it, it's two layers um, there. And telecommunications carriers is a very distinct entity defined in the statute. And guess what it's not? It's not edge providers. It's not big tech. They aren't telecommunications providers. So under the statute, the FCC couldn't do this. And it's, it's even way far of that because, you know, in, in that article, I, I sort of did this, you know, informatic, you know, uh, uh, image where I showed 
you know, the types of services that are telecommunications services and that the FCC has jurisdiction under, you know, and then this continuum goes out and then there's these other services that aren't telecommunications services, but the FCC has some sort of jurisdiction under, um, you know, title, you know, title five cable and title three broadcast, you know, they have some jurisdiction over, but then you get to the, you know, edge providers, which are essentially just program providers, right? The Netflixes of the world, you know, the Hulus of the world. The FCC has no jurisdictional hook whatsoever. And to suddenly say, or, or the Googles or the Facebooks and say, okay, we're going to make you pay into the Universal Service Fund because you ride on you know, the internet. And therefore, we think you should pay your freight. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the analogy I give to that is that's like saying that rather than just the truckers paying the gasoline tax, which funds the, the, you know, the interstate highway system, we're gonna charge everybody who rides on top of those long, you know, those long haul trucks. So every basket of fruit is gonna have to pay the gasoline tax on top of the freight you know, tax that they have to pay. It's the, well, tax the analogy tax. holds right. The analogy holds that the truckers are pretty easy to track and tax, but the individual yes. strawberry baskets are very hard to keep track of if you want right. to tax them. And it actually that's similar with the streaming services with their exactly. shifting customer bases. And exactly, exactly. And oh, by the way, what's going to happen if you suddenly make Netflix start paying into the universal service fund? What do you think your Netflix subs subscription is going to be next month? Oh, it's going to have this line item on it that's going to say Universal Service Fund contribution factor. It's going to be. We are recording right the morning that Netflix's stock dropped by a shed a quarter of its value, which yeah. makes this timely <laughs> as well. Yeah. So it's just, you know, the FCC can't do it. Uh, they don't have jurisdiction. And it would be pretty stupid for Congress to do it because now you're, you know, now we're, we're doing what Congress said in 1996, we shouldn't do. You know, 1996, Congress said, we need to keep our hands off the internet. It's flourishing. It's working really well. Why? Because we don't have a whole lot of government regulation of it. And now we're just saying, oh, well, no, let's start adding more. You know, let's give the FCC more power. Let's give them more jurisdiction and let's let them, you know, let's let them tax, you know, the streaming services. And oh, how are they going to do that? Oh, they're going to hand, they're going to offload that to USAC. And so we're right back full circle again to the, you know, <laughs> to the rot in the swamp. We're big on good governance here at Tech Freedom. And I, I just, um, it, it grinds my gears, you know, that, the government just is always happy to create a Rube Goldberg taxation machine when simply allotting the money up front and passing it in an appropriations bill would do the trick because then you, you know you do that and the sticker price is right there in front of your face and you have to vote it up or down as the representative. But oh, you set up a Rube Goldberg machine. I mean, Sorry to ruffle maybe liberal feathers here, but I'm thinking of like the Affordable Care Act. Like, hey, we want health care for the poor. Well, we, you know, we could tax people and make a fund and pay. No, 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 no. Then it would all be up front and we'd know exactly how much it costs. Rube Goldberg machine. We're going to incorporate it into these, you know, into these pools with everyone else and it'll be all opaque. Well, this is very, it has a very similar feel. And, um, you know, yeah. I'm shouting so, into the wind here, but could, it's could, the old saying, you know, I won't tax you if you won't tax me. We'll tax that guy behind the tree. 
Yeah, I mean, I, this podcast is not going to solve this problem, but legislators, please just, just you know, be adults, figure out how much you want to spend, uh, you know, set it aside, vote it, and uh, then spend it. Oh, anyway, Jim, this has been a nice little entree into so much larger issues of political philosophy and, and political science. Um, there's a lot here, listeners, um, that we can sort of plug as tech freedom. We've been very active in this area. Um, in the show notes, you will be able to find the comment uh, that Jim discussed. Uh, we filed a brief in the Fifth Circuit on the private delegation issue, and I will put that there. I wrote an accompanying article in Law and Liberty. I'm going to put that there. So we're going to have a, a hyperlink busy show notes by our standards. Um, oh, and Jim's, and Jim's uh, RTP article as well. So there's a lot here. Um, Jim, though, you are always doing yet more. So, and, you know, you have your private practice that you uh, can feel free to plug here. But um, please, on our way out, just tell us what's on your mind these days. What's coming up? What should we look out for from you? Well, I think... Um... What we need, we what we really need to look out for, and what we're working on is, we're trying to make sure that this money, this once in a once, you know, money that's that's flowing from Congress actually goes to where it needs to go. Uh, and so we're keeping a real close look on that. Um, we're writing a lot about it. I've been on several panels about it, um, you know, and and this whole idea that. Um, well, if we just hand it to the municipalities and let them build their own networks, um, they'll be competitors to the to, to to the cable systems and whatnot, and and that's just such a bad idea. And so we're we're really trying to beat the drum um, on that one. And so it's again, it's you know, it, it, it's trying to hold people accountable, uh, you know, transparency on these projects. Uh, making sure that the consultants don't come in and just you know take take their ten percent off the top, like what happened with it, you know ARRA back in two thousand eight. Um, so we're you know trying to stay on top of that um, good governance, um, and you know maybe we'll make some headway. Well, if you have enjoyed this show, uh, especially if you're a board of uh, board board member of the USAC, uh, please give this uh, podcast a five star rating wherever you listen. I'd appreciate it. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for your time. There's a reason I always keep inviting you back. You're so much fun. Um, I am Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Till next time. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.